are in actually our final week of a series called Uncomfortable. And the reason that we titled this uh, little sermon series Uncomfortable is because if you read through the New Testament, what you find is that Jesus says a lot of things that are kind of uncomfortable. In fact, if you ever grew up going to church or if you went to vacation Bible school, there was, I don't know if you remember these things, but they were called felt boards. And a felt board was where you had little, little sheep and you'd put them up, up on the felt board and you have a little donkey and you put it up on the felt board and you have a little shepherd and you put it on the felt board. And there was Jesus and you put Jesus on the felt board and Jesus always had a smile on his face and he always looked like he was really, really sweet. And so if you grew up with that version of Jesus, then all of a sudden as an adult, when you start reading through the gospels, you're like, wow, Jesus sometimes said things that were a little uncomfortable, right? And so that's what we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to dive into some of these uncomfortable things that Jesus said. One of the things that he said a couple weeks ago we looked at was when he talked to Peter, who was one of his very own disciples, and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. And so we talked about that a little bit. And then last week, um, Jeff talked about the very uncomfortable uh, topic of divorce, which was a challenging and uncomfortable topic. This week, I'm going to be looking at Matthew 13. Uh, Jeff mentioned that a minute ago as well. Um, And just one quick reminder, uh, next week we're going to be beginning a new sermon series called Theophany. Now, Theophany is when God appears to human beings. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the Theophanies of the Old Testament, when God appears to people in the Old Testament. So that'll be beginning next week. Let's go ahead and do this. I'm going to pray, and then uh, as soon as I pray, we'll jump in. Father, thanks for these people that are here this morning. I thank you, Father, that you have drawn them here, that they're not here by accident, but you have something in store for each of and every person that's in this room this morning. And so, Father, I pray that um, you would open up their hearts to you, that they might have a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And those of you guys who've been coming to Seven Hills Fellowship very long know that I typically begin a sermon with some sort of a story or some sort of an illustration. Every now and then, I don't do that, and today, I'm not going to do it. And so, if you like the stories I tell, sorry, we're not going to do that today. And the reason I'm not doing it is because the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at is what's called a parable. And so, it's a story that Jesus tells, so he does that work for me. So, I'm just going to jump in to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, and then verses 18 through 23. So, if you'll follow along with me. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. And they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Then in verse 18, later Jesus interprets this parable to his disciples. Verse 18, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. 
But the seed falling on, the, on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. I think we, it's fair to say that everybody, at least everybody I know, loves stories. We all enjoy stories. We might not enjoy the same kinds of stories, but we all get drawn into stories if it's a good one. And so as little children, uh, many of our parents read stories to us. Maybe they read Dr. Seuss stories, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. Some of you guys remember that story. Or Green Eggs and Ham. I had a friend one time who went to school in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was from Greenville, South Carolina. And he had, there were like 19 different people in his class from various parts of the world. And uh, he actually had each of them read a segment of uh, Green Eggs and Ham so he could actually hear their accent. It was really kind of interesting. Maybe it was the cat in the hat. You guys are familiar with that story. I remember as a kid always being stressed out. Even though I knew the ending of the story, I was always stressed out about whether or not the kids were going to get the house cleaned up in time before their parents got home. Very stressful. As we got older, we were probably drawn to different kinds of stories. Maybe it was the Hunger Games. Maybe it was the book Dune. Maybe it was Harry Potter. Maybe for some of you like Jordan, it was the Twilight series. Jordan, I've had long conversations about that. Just kidding. Uh, Eventually, many of us traded those stories contained in books for stories that were embedded in movies and TV, like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or maybe Jenny and Georgia. That's the number one rated TV series on Netflix this week. By the way, I've never seen it. I just Googled that and looked it up. Anybody watch that show? I know nothing. All right. You you may or may not want to check it out. I have no recommendation. Often, stories are purely for fun, but stories can also be purposeful. They aim to teach us something or they aim to challenge the reader in some particular way. Great teachers, college teachers, high school teachers, uh, middle school teachers, elementary school teachers, will often use stories to teach principles or to uh, give information um, from their particular discipline. The reason they do that is because they know that often the way to gain access to someone's mind is actually through the back door of their heart. And so it shouldn't be any surprise to know that Jesus' primary way of teaching was often through story, as we read earlier. Often Jesus would tell a story meant to rebuke or challenge someone, and they would get completely sucked into the story until at the very end they realized that Jesus was actually confronting them about something that was uncomfortable. But by the time they were already into the story, they were emotionally invested, and whether they liked it or not, They had heard what he had to say. That's definitely true here in the story of the sower, the seed, and the soil. So what do we see here in this story that Jesus tells? Well, before we dive too far in, let's look at the context of the story. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, about how context is part of text. At the very beginning of today's text, we read the following quote. It says this in verse 1, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. That's how the story begins. So the question is, what happened that day, right? Because that's the context here. Well, Jesus had healed a man with a shriveled hand, and the Pharisees, offended by his power and offended by the fact that he did this healing on the Sabbath, began to formulate a plot to have Jesus killed. Now, there's more to it than that. They had already been sort of threatened by him. Also, Jesus, that same day, had cast a demon out of a man, again on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, instead of marveling at this miraculous event, attacked Jesus verbally and attributed his power to Satan. And then after all of this, the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they had the audacity to ask him for a sign. Were they 
really curious? Were they actually just trying to entrap him? We're not told, but clearly it had been a very full day for Jesus. So that same day was very significant. It had, I'd imagine, already been a long day for Jesus when he stood on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he was so crushed by the crowd that he pushed a few yards off from shore in a fishing boat, creating a natural amphitheater. You can kind of close your eyes and envision that scene. And from there, he spoke to these crowds. And in light of all of that backstory, the thrust of this parable should come as no surprise. Again, there are Pharisees, there are crowds, there are the disciples, there are those that are just curious. They're all there listening. Now, again, back to this idea of a parable. Have you ever noticed that parables and proverbs often leave you hanging or leave you slightly confused? Parables and proverbs are intended to create cognitive dissonance or to stick with the theme. They often create discomfort. They demand you to engage in some sort of an intellectual wrestling match. This, this parable today does exactly that. In this case, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to seed and soil. It's a farming metaphor that his audience would have understood intuitively and would have understood immediately. What they might not have understood, however, was why Jesus was applying this slow growth metaphor to this idea of the kingdom. If you remember, the Jews and the disciples were still expecting the Messiah, and they were expecting the inauguration of this thing that they called the kingdom, and they thought it was going to be this dramatic overthrowing of the Roman government. They thought it was going to be this, this sort of military event. If Jesus had said the kingdom of God is like Thor flying in with his war hammer, they might have understood that, even though they probably wouldn't have known who Thor was at that point in time. Or if Jesus had said the kingdom of God will be like Maximus riding into battle on his war horse, they might have understood that imagery. But Jesus didn't liken the kingdom of God to war. He didn't liken the kingdom of God to a battle. Instead, he said the kingdom of God is going to be like a farm and a field. It's going to be like a sower with some seed. It's not at all what they were expecting. The second jarring thing about this parable was who it was supposed to make uncomfortable. And that was everyone. It was supposed to make everyone uncomfortable. Each person in the crowd, after hearing Jesus' story, almost indefinitely would have struggled afterwards with which soil they were. And I think to be fair to Jesus, I think we should struggle with that same question today as well. So what do those soils represent? The first thing, the first soil that Jesus talks about represents, I believe, calloused hearts, calloused hearts. I'm going to read a little section of, uh, of this parable. Jesus says this, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Jesus later explains the hardened soil this way in verse 18, Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And so some of us read this section of the parable, and we logically sort of ask the question, why would anyone sow seed on a path? But anyone who's ever spread grass seed knows how this happens. You've got a spreader. Some people have a spreader where you push the, uh, the spreader and it throws grass seed around the yard. Others of you have a handheld spreader and you spread grass seed. Maybe if you're younger, you've never done this before, but if you're a middle-aged person, you almost indefinitely have. Um, but essentially what, you, what happens when you spread grass seed is a little bit falls on the sidewalk, a little bit falls on some, your driveway or some pathway somewhere, and you just kind of know that it's going to get wasted. 
The path that Jesus speaks of here would have been a hardened footpath of packed soil that would have run through these fields. It would have been so hard that instead of falling into the soil where it could have had a chance to take root, it would have sat on top of the hard-packed ground exposed and would ultimately have been food for the birds. Jesus' interpretation of the soil is twofold. First, the soil of some listeners' hearts were hard and calloused. They were closed off to the word of the kingdom or the gospel. And then secondly, the hardness of their hearts to the word of God caused them to be easy prey for Satan who came along and plucked the seed so it couldn't take root at all. Now, in the immediate context of this parable, Jesus was clearly speaking about the Pharisees. They had their kingdom, and they didn't need his. In their kingdom, they had power, they had influence, they made the rules, they exacted punishments, and they administered rewards as they saw fit. Their hearts were hardened to the word of God because Jesus' kingdom threatened theirs. And I promise you that we have these people in our midst today. It's not Pharisees, <laughs> but, but really religious people whose hearts are actually closed off to God. And ironically, what I would argue exists in our context here are the super-religious people and then the ardently irreligious people. Another way to define these groups would be the religious legalists and the secular legalists. The super-religious could be people like we think of when we think about televangelists or megachurch pastors or little church pastors. The super-religious could be some of today's famous Christian podcasters, yesterday's Jim Jones, Ted Haggers, and Jim Bakers, but they can also be super-religious parents, homeschoolers, or Christian schoolers. By the way, we homeschooled until our kids were in third grade, and I actually went to a pretty great Christian school in middle school, so I'm actually putting myself in the crosshairs here. But our super-moral religious kingdoms are often threatened by God's inside-out, upside-down kingdom. The super-religious aren't actually relying upon Jesus' righteousness, but instead are relying upon their own. And because of that, the soil of their hearts is actually hardened to the gospel. The hardened soil can also be the ardently irreligious, the Bill Mars, the Sam Harris's, the Richard Dawkins of the world, anyone who's invested in their own secular kingdom so much that they're unwilling to have it disrupted no matter what. I once read an article by a woman who admitted that she embraced atheism so she could live however she wanted to. And eventually, as an alcoholic, she hit rock bottom and made a decision to turn her life over to Christ. From there, she changed dramatically. But if you have hardened your heart to God's grace, if you've hardened your heart to the gospel, either due to religion or due to irreligion, then you're like the seed that falls upon the path. You hear the word, but you're keeping it out of your heart at all costs. And Satan intends to keep it that way. So the first soil represents calloused hearts, and then the second soil represents what I'll call shallow hearts. Look at verses 5 and 6 and 20 and 21. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Jesus explains the second soil this way. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Around the foundation of our house at 14 Quail Hollow is an area that is covered with pea gravel, 
And underneath much of that pea gravel is a black plastic weed barrier that was actually put there before uh, by the previous owner of the house. And sometimes over the years, I've spread grass seed. Some of that grass seed would make its way into the gravel, and it would sprout up into a little pocket of water or maybe some shallow dirt that was beneath the gravel but on top of that weed barrier. But the problem is it's never, ever going to be able to take root in the soil beneath because of that plastic weed barrier. So as soon as it gets hot and as soon as it gets dry, that little blade of grass is going to go from green to yellow to brown. It's going to die. You've probably seen that happen in similar contexts. If the first soil likely represents the Pharisees, then this soil almost certainly represents that some portion of the crowds who have begun to follow Jesus at this point. He's really exciting. He's intriguing. He's offering something. There are often displays of power. Sometimes there's free food. They're always entertaining talks. Occasionally, demon-possessed people are healed. And so this segment of the audience that Jesus is talking about They're filled with emotion, and they excitedly, but somewhat shallowly, embrace the message of Jesus. But they haven't counted the cost of actually following him, and so when inevitable suffering or tribulation arrives, they fall away. One clarification here, it's not just that they fall away because of suffering in general, but they fall away because of suffering that, in verse 21, Jesus tells us, arises on account of the word. In other words, because of the truth of the gospel about Jesus' claims. Along the way, I've experienced a little bit of persecution for being a Christian. High school was not a big deal. It was usually, hey, BP, I'm going to get you drunk. That was usually sort of the, the, you know, the the tribulation that I faced. People would kind of have fun with me because I was a Christian. In college, working at Furman as a lifeguard in the summers, I would oftentimes have conversations with students and professors who occasionally displayed some level of contempt or scorn or disdain because I was a follower of Jesus and because I believed in salvation by faith in Christ alone and because I held to some sort of generally orthodox view of Christianity. But all of that was no big deal in comparison to Christians who have suffered throughout history. In Hebrews 11, Paul, who was a former persecutor of the church himself, wrote the following, some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. When Chris and I were living in Gainesville, Georgia, we once had a man from Timbuktu, which is actually a city in Mali, stay with us for a couple of days. His name was Mohadiku. He had a really, really fascinating story. When he was a young man in Timbuktu, he had been in a gang. He regularly robbed and beat people, usually at gunpoint. But one day there was a a preacher in Timbuktu who was standing out in the town square, and he was talking about Jesus. And Moha wasn't listening at all, but he thought, there's somebody that I could actually rob. And so after this preacher finished speaking, Moha followed the preacher back to his house. He made his way into the apartment where the preacher was staying. He waited For a few moments, and then he pulled out a gun, he put it in the man's face, and he demanded that the preacher give him all of his money. Now, instead, this preacher, who had been brave enough to preach in Timbuktu, started sharing the gospel with Moha, telling him that God loved him, telling him that God wanted to actually have a relationship with him. And Moha said at first he was shaking with anger, and he repeatedly threatened to shoot this preacher. But he eventually lowered his gun, and he said he began to weep. At that moment, he gave his life to Christ. 
When he went home, he told his Muslim family that he'd become a Christian, and they ridiculed him. And in uh, Mali, you eat out of a family bowl, and so there's a big bowl in the center of the table, and they put rice and chicken and food in the bowl, and everybody eats out of this bowl together. But when Moha became a Christian, they wouldn't let him eat out of the family bowl. They made, made him eat out of the dog bowl that was on the floor beside the table. Eventually, they kicked him out of his home altogether, and so he experienced real tribulation, real trials on account of his faith. Again, remember the audience of this parable, its disciples, its crowds, its Pharisees. And so the lesson here to the disciples, and again, it also applies to us, and it really should fill us with sadness, and it's this, is that Jesus is saying that you as his witnesses will see people accept the good news, and then you'll see them fall away when they experience the cost of following Jesus. They'll be faced with questions of authority. Is it scripture or is it culture? Is it God's word or is it their comfort? And when faced with that tension, some will make their choice and they will walk away. Jesus is preparing the disciples and probably you and me as well for this sadness. We shouldn't be surprised when we see people that we thought were Christians fall away on account of the word of God. In fact, if many of us were put in that situation that Mohadiku was put in, it would be understandable that some of us would be greatly tempted to walk away. But the lesson to the crowds that day that Jesus was giving, it's a diagnostic tool for us. This time, the question to you is this, what is your ultimate authority? Who has the final say about your life? Is it the word of God or is it the word of culture? What are you rooted in? When you inevitably face persecution, will you remain rooted in Jesus or will you wither? So, calloused hearts, shallow hearts, and next, divided hearts. Look at verse 7 and then 21 and 22. Other seeds, Jesus says, fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Jesus explains the soil this way, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In our backyard, Krista planted some blueberry bushes, probably now 10 or 12 years ago. They've mostly done really, really well with the exception of a drought several years ago that nearly killed them. But over the last several years, there's some indigenous shrubs that have begun to encroach more and more until one of the blueberry bushes on the very edge was in danger of being overgrown entirely. The indigenous shrubs would have outcompeted them for water and for sunlight and inevitably, they would have uh, at least greatly uh, damaged the ability for the blueberry bush to grow. It might have lived, but it would have hardly flourished. Many of us became Christians in childhood. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you went to vacation Bible school with your grandparents. Maybe you entrusted your life to Jesus in youth group or at some Christian summer camp. Maybe you decided to follow Jesus in high school because of young life or in college because of campus outreach. And it was wonderful. You walked with and experienced the God of the universe caring about you. He grabbed hold of your heart, and he began to break your addictions. He smoothed out a rough edge here, filled in a gap there. Maybe God took hold of your anxious heart and gave you peace. For the first time in your life, it was wonderful. And you didn't know it then, but your life was actually going to get a lot harder. In your late 20s and 30s, you began working 40 to 55 hours a week at your new job. Maybe you had two or three small children, maybe a mortgage, and then cell phone bills, and then a car payment. And then in middle school, when your kids were in middle school, somebody needed braces, and then you bought a minivan, and you sent your kids to Windshape Summer Camp. 
the desires and the needs of the world began to outcompete the kingdom of God in your heart. It only makes sense. And so little by little, it's just so easy to make choices to place our kingdom before God's kingdom and until we're so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. It's relatively easy to tell in this parable that the first two groups aren't Christians. But with this group, it's harder to tell what Jesus intends. Do the thorns entirely choke the life out of these seeds and these new plants? Do they remain alive but just hardly bear any fruit? I've always read this and assumed that all three of the first soils, that those weren't Christians, that they fall away from God and they're just lost. But others allow for the fact that they are Christians who mostly just sort of struggle along in their faith. Here's what Tim Keller and Charles Spurgeon have to say about this third group. Beginning with Spurgeon, he says this, The third group is on a boat to heaven, he says. They can't fall off and drown, but they can fall on the deck and break a leg and spend life in the infirmary. Keller, on the other hand, Tim Keller, that is, says this, They have little power. They're following Jesus, but they're filled with anxiety. They need to ask themselves why they're so unhappy. They are being choked out, and as a result, they're miserable. The only way they're going to be happy is if Jesus is their Lord. So what do we do with this third soil, this thorny soil, these people of divided hearts? It may help here to go back to the hermeneutic principle of remembering the audience makeup, disciples, crowds, and Pharisees. Jesus' message for the disciples is don't be surprised when you see people who seem to follow me having divided hearts and see these people who are virtually fruitless. Be ready for this reality. Don't be shocked when you see it and know what the issue is. They have divided hearts. They're torn. Their allegiance is torn. And putting ourselves in the place of the crowds again, this parable also serves as a diagnostic tool for us. And honestly, this group is likely to be where most of us in this room are this morning. We slowly choose soccer games over Sunday worship. We choose financial obligations over tithes and over offerings. We choose to read the news app on our phones instead of pondering and praying over the words that come from the author of reality. If you're miserable and feeling choked out, consider whether or not your heart has become slowly and imperceptibly divided. You have to make a decision. Where is your ultimate hope? What is your ultimate joy? The things dividing your heart are actually good things, children, vacations, and work, but none of those things can save you, and ultimately none of those things can satisfy you, and none of those things can definitely set you free. Calloused hearts, shallow hearts, divided hearts. The last soil that we're going to look at here, I'm going to call open hearts, beginning in verse 8. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, and Jesus explains this fourth soil this way. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now most of us, or many of us in this room, have grown up in the southeast where the ground is comprised of Georgia red clay. You put a shovel in this terracotta soil, turn it over, and it's the consistency of Play-Doh. You can grow some things in it, but often it needs to be mixed with better soil. Now, on the other hand, in Northwest Ohio, maybe we have a couple people in this room for Northwest Ohio. It's where Krista's grandparents live in farm country. They have hundreds of acres of land, and it's all super flat. But mile after mile, the roads are straight, the earth is flat, and the soil looks like coffee grounds. It's almost black. 
Uh, it's you know like when you empty out your French press, it's just that dark. Drop a seed in the soil of Van Wert, Ohio, and it will spring up to life in no time. And Jesus is saying that that's the way it is with certain people. When they hear the word of God, their hearts are like rich soil. They hear the word of the kingdom, and they take off and grow, producing fruit. One could think of Eric Little, Mother Teresa, or Billy Graham, but I also tend to think about real people that I know, like Emily Kalin. Emily's here today, or Joel Kennedy, who may be here today, or Brenda Briggs, or Rob Edens. Some of the people I think of are in ministry proper, but others are just lawyers and teachers, doctors, coaches, or moms and dads who simply opened their hearts to God and to the gospel, and as a result, they're bearing fruit, fruit of a heart that belongs to Jesus. So really, the question that this parable leaves us with today is this, where are you? Are you hard-hearted and closed to the kingdom of God because God's kingdom actually threatens your kingdom? Are you shallow-hearted and are you offended by the depth, the cost, and the fidelity demanded by the kingdom of God that is in opposition to the values of the greater culture? Is your heart divided and distracted from the kingdom by pressures and the busyness of life and wealth, or is your heart open and enlivened by the kingdom of God within you? I actually hope that this parable has actually made you a little uncomfortable today. That's what it was intended to do. My prayer for each of you, however, is that the beauty of Jesus and the goodness of his kingdom will win the battle for your heart. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that your son Jesus, like a good doctor or a good PT or a good teacher, that Jesus is willing to make us slightly uncomfortable so that we might actually wake up and that we might understand what's at stake, Father. Father, I pray that we would see today that what is at stake is actually goodness and wholeness and peace, Father, satisfaction and rest for our weary hearts, Father. I pray that we would indeed find our hope and our security and our peace in you and in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things today.